Good evening. This episode is sponsored by Quent Cordell Fine Art. Find more about them later in the video. Let me introduce this topic. Economics is in a really bankrupt state. And if it continues through this path, it will no longer, no longer become even a resemblance of a science. And to discuss that, we have uh, James to talk about the most quoted uh, article on this matter, which is um, from Milton Friedman in 1953. Let me tell you before I talk to you, to you James, about uh, the context of this essay. The essay was uh, presented as a, an alternative to the um, criticisms that have been proposed against Alfred Marshall's theory. Alfred Marshall was one of the most uh, one of the exponents of the neoclassical theory of economics, which basically meant that it applied the marginalist revolution to the mainstream of economics. There were three major expo exponents of the marginal marginalist revolution. And these were Marshall, which was one that came into about in the marginals theory. It was William Stanley Jevons, which is less known, but also more or less mainstream, and Menger. Menger is the Austrian, and which was ultimately cast, to, cast away from the theory. However, Marshall was very mathematical, and a lot of the criticism of the 1940s and, and 50s was that he wasn't very methodological and very scientific. So Milton Friedman comes into place and he says, wait a second, we, there's a way in which we can treat Marshall uh, in a more sens sensible way. And this sensible way is, let's hear his assumptions, but don't take them too seriously, because what it matters is the predictability power of the science. So James, what are your opinions on this? Yes, this article is one of the most important articles on methodology in economics as a science ever published by any economist. It had a huge impact on economists and the way they did their business in the second half of the 20th century. It was that influential an article. Milton Friedman is most famous for his monetary history of the United States, a giant detailed analysis of monetary policy and its effect on the economy he did with the co-author. And it is for that work, but also for this work that I think he got the Nobel Prize in economics in the 1970s. It was that influential an article, as well as his uh, monumental work on, on monetary history in the United States. But you're right, he is a student of uh, Marshall's uh, ideas. He's trying to defend that general approach to neoclassical um, economics. As you pointed out, the great scientific innovation of the last 150 years to turn economics into a sort of a real science is this marginal revolution. And as you pointed out, uh, People like Carl uh, Menger have largely been forgotten about this, even if they had a superior approach. Milton Friedman is here using a positivist standard of knowledge. All knowledge, whether it's in the physical sciences or anything else, is tentative. All value knowledge is purely subjective. He quotes John Stuart Mill on this, whether we all know from Hume, for example, that we can't get a and off from an is in any objective way. So we can dismiss values. We can dismiss the certainty of knowledge. For him, it is a, if you're familiar with positivism as a philosophy, it's a largely positivist approach to economics as a science. It uses, as you just pointed out, predictive, predictiveness as the only objective test of a theory. 
Um, it uh, assumes all kinds of dichotomies that as we as objectivists uh, in epistemology and even in metaethics completely reject. Uh, uh, and we can get into a, a bunch of those. But the standard for Friedman that he's actually using here is the physical sciences. If something is not quantifiably predictable, then it is not objective. It's not. It doesn't even have a claim to being objective, even if objective knowledge were, were possible. The only sort of tentative objectivity we can achieve is if we have quantifiable predictability in every aspect. And that is, of course, uh, the wrong standard for any science <laughs> to start out in any science. That's a not. I'm not saying that predictive predictiveness isn't a test for a causal generalization. Of course, it it is. It's part of our analysis. But is it the ultimate test? Is it the standard of truth? No, it is not. It presupposes, as we objectivists know, it presupposes a whole mountain of epistemology. Um, so, uh, methodologically speaking, he didn't economics no favors whatever. And in fact, a lot of people what. In fact, it has only helped the decline of economics because people will say, no, it's not perfect. You're, even you and your Chicago school people, Professor Friedman, cannot mathematically predict the exact timing or the exact quantity of some policy effect. Uh, whether it's price controls, minimum wage, all the things that he was out, you know, uh, against. But of course, having an um, unprincipled sort of philosophy, being a trying his best to be value free and to avoid the deeper questions of philosophy, which are unavoidable, is of course systematically destroying economics as a science. And by setting out this sort of physicalist, positivist model for science, he's approaching economics in an entirely uh, wrong way. Uh, if I could just one more little thing here, you know, uh, economics is under all kinds of criticism because what it, a lot of people will say it assumes people are rational actors and will do the rational thing. It assumes this homo economicus, the, the, the rational actor. It makes all kinds of assumptions about perfect competition and things like that. And so because of these assumptions, about human nature, we economics is not an objective science at all. Well, as objectivists, we know, for example, that reason is in fact our only means of knowing beyond the level of sense perception. Reason is our means of knowledge, not Ouija boards, uh, horoscopes, uh, tea leaves, or mystical faith. Oh, we, as objectivists, we know reason is our most basic, most fun, not our only one, but our most fundamental tool of survival. Tools. Can people act irrationally, though? As objectivists, we believe that reason operates volitionally, so people can act totally irrationally. We do not assume as we walk into economics that human beings are going to always act rationally. We do not. We do not. But let's look at a couple of uh, economic uh, principles. Let's take a very simple one discovered by Adam Smith, the division of labor. If I have to do everything all on my own, grow my food, make my clothes, build my house, I'm going to be less well off than if I specialize and trade with other people for certain things. Division of labor works. It's rational. Mm -hmm. Now, am I going to say that everyone's going to be rational? Could a person go off and be a hermit in somewhere and try and live in a self-sustaining farm someplace, refuse to engage in commercial transactions, specialization or the division of labor? Of course they can. Of course they can. Insofar as people are using reason to know, Insofar as people are using reason to decide things, they will, all other things being equal, opt for a specialization in the division of labor. 
take one of the great, uh, we were just mentioning the marginal utility revolution of neoclassical economics. Uh, uh, oh, let's go even further. The, one of the great insights of Austrian economics is that the free market price system delivers information to both producers and consumers that they would otherwise not have. If you interfere with free market prices, what you're doing is you're depriving people of the of the information they need to make a rational decision. Whether as a, the price goes up, I cut back on my marginal uh, consumption of that product. Uh, the profitability goes up, the producer rushes in to make more of the product. We don't have those signals if we don't have a free market price system. Well, Again, all other things being equal, what we're saying here is if you are going to act rationally, you're going to need the free market price system. Absent the free market price system, rational actors are, are denied that information, the information of the free market price system. We're not saying everyone's going to be a rational actor. In fact, an objectivist could say, well, wait a minute, what if Christianity takes over as the values, as the normative values? of the world. Everyone wants to be a, a, a monk and would join a monastery and go off and, and lead, lead a, the life of a hermit. Would that be, would that have an effect on the economy? Of course it would. People's values are going to shape their choices. We accept that. We accept as objectivists that people act irrationally. What we say is, all other things be, being equal, if people are free, confronting the problem of survival on their own, all other things being equal, reason will tend to win. They'll have to go by reality. They'll have to use reason to make their decisions. And insofar as they want to be and are rational actors, the laws of economics will thus apply. Um, so does that make economics numerically predictable? No, of course not. I cannot predict the, and here the Austrians are much better than uh, Friedman, uh, even though they have their own methodological issues in my view. <laughs> Nonetheless, they're far superior to Friedman on this point. They're not gonna try and predict the exact timing or the exact quanti quantity of the effect because they know there are all kinds of other factors. And guess what? They're not assuming something about uh, human beings and this homo economicus. You see, by trying to defend the science of economics, Friedman has actually accepted the bad premises that the critics of economics have thrown out. You're right. It would require us to believe that all men are rational actors and that people are, you know, and that they're, they take perfect competition. No one believes that every market is the same, that every industry is the same, that there are going to be differences <laughs> depending on the condition, that wh whether it's new technology or old technology, whether there actually is a shortage in the supply of some natural resource that may be contextual. All those things are going to change the impact of a market, the ease of entry and so forth. No, so when you're almost a perfect competition, no, 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 no. What we're saying is that the key element here is coercion. Is there Are there any coercive barriers to entry? Uh, so you can't focus on that uh, inductive generalization, right? That it's the coercive part, unless you're approaching it as a science, but understanding that it is not a science in the positivistic sense at all, but a, but a system of inductive generalizations, of inductively generalized principles, which apply even to human beings uh, who have free will, whether it's human history that we're studying, psychology that we're studying, or economics that we're studying. It assumes a view of humanity, a view of man and his relationship to the universe. In fact, that's what philosophy is all about, the relationship between hum human beings, their consciousness, and existence, the existence in which they live. And this relationship has to, has to be a premise of all science, whether it's physics, Professor Friedman, 
or economics. And, and this thing that you point out is probably when I when I try to summarize the essence of this essay, I pointed out two things. One was the normative issue that you mentioned, which is essentially the um, the issue that he says, okay, what we all agree in the normative theories, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, the, the only issue, the only thing that we have disagreements with each other is the positive because we disagree with the facts and therefore th that's the main focus of this essay. And the second topic, and, and I'm, I don't think it's, I don't think it will be super fruitful to talk about the normative because even though it's a massive issue and I think it's fatally flawed, but, but, but it's just the first paragraph. I think right. uh, the other issue is <laughs> this, he has no conception of induction None. because on, on, the one, on the one side, he talks about the, the hy hypothesis having some uh, notion of on how to decide which hypotheses are better and, and, and facts are good for, to, to tell you that. But on the other hand, he talks about language being just a tautology and theory being just something that comes out of nowhere. Where, what on earth? <laughs> well, we, uh, you're going to, uh, I have to answer that. But, you know, today, as you pointed out at the beginning, is we're sponsored by Quint Cordaire Fine Art. And a big shout out to them. They are amazing. Quint Cordaire Fine Arts has been making the world an even more beautiful place for 27 years now, specializing in romantic realist paintings and sculpture. The gallery's collection emphasizes themes which celebrate the moments of happiness, joy, and success possible to man on earth. Acquire art you will want to live with, ladies and gentlemen, by visiting them online at, at, at cordaire.com or at their Napa, California, or Jackson, Wyoming locations. And the new Ayn Rand portrait prints have arrived. You can visit the link in the description and the pinned comment to get yours today. For every print purchased with the code ARCUK, Quent Cordaire Fine Art will donate $25 to the Ayn Rand Center UK, what we're doing here. If you think these kind of conversations are important, go to Quent Cordaire Fine Art. You can help both your quality of life and the work we do here. Now, what you just said there was loaded. Yeah. Absolutely. They, he rejects, he accepts the all the premises, bad premises of modern philosophy. Induction plays no role. We can come to know inductive generalizations with certainty. They're always tentative. He agrees totally in this fact value opposition. Oh, well, sticking back over with uh, just with plain logic, you, you pointed out, if it's linguistic, as far as he's concerned, it's pure tautology. And then, of course, facts, facts are, well, you know, they're this tentative <laughs> thing. They can only give us give us a rough guess as to as to as we're groping in the dark <laughs> for the most consistent sort of way of putting it together. Um, so for him, all knowledge is really undermined. But also, as you say, and you brought up the first point is really vital. There is no subject associated with human beings. There is no part of the humanities or social sciences, which can ignore values, which can, which even physics doesn't ignore values. Even the scientific process and discovering of the laws of physics is a purposeful cognitive 
pursuit. When it comes to humans, not only does it have to be a purposeful cognitive pursuit, but it has to take into account human values and human life. So there is no subject in the humanities that isn't fraught with value questions. And with those value questions are inherently subjective, if they can't be considered, if we can't say, you know, uh, objectively, for example, that the automobile was more efficient or that Henry Ford's uh, mechanized assembly line in producing the automobile was a better thing, more efficient, created productivity. The, an hour of work from an industrial worker produced more, had greater output because of this innovation in the mechanized assembly line. We have to be able to make value assessments to say, yeah, that's better than otherwise. Otherwise, why wouldn't living in a cave be superior? Why wouldn't living in a slave society be superior or some communist or fascist dictatorship be superior? No, you have to be able to uh, evaluate the, not only do you have to see reason as our method of knowing, you have to give it its evaluative role. You have to be able to say, yeah, well, people can act irrationally, I'm, I'm not assuming that everyone is homo economicus and a perfect rational actor here, but insofar as they act rationally, they are acting against knowing, they're acting against succeeding, they're not going to be successful in pursuing their values, they don't even know what their values are. Are their values objective? So without all that already established, you can't even enter, it seems to me, an understanding of the methodology in any of the humanities. And Milton Friedman has screwed that up being a sad victim. And you can just read it on every page of this uh, essay of his, a sad victim of every philosophical error of the last 200 years. <laughs> really, truly, whether it's fact versus value and the objectivity of values, whether it's tautology versus fact and, you know, these contingent facts that are always hypothetical, or whether it's the assault on inductive generalizations as such, whether in the humanities or anywhere else, he seems to be a total victim of it. And far from helping put economics on a scientific objective basis, he in fact concedes the case. He throws in the towel in effect and says, you're right. Uh, and it has only increased, it seems to me, uh, skepticism and subjectivism with regard to the economics and the humanities in general. Definitely, because the the philosophy of economics field um, has still progressed a lot and or retrogressed a lot. And probably the most quoted um, essay on the matter following Friedman is Deidre McCloskey's one. And I think it's probably worse because she, uh, with Mil with Friedman, you can see some notion of respect towards methodology. Well, with McCloskey, he says she says, "Okay, no, this is uh, this is an issue of uh, rhetoric, and we can just have an open mind and let's follow Kahn and uh, Feyerbach. That's it." That, of course, destroys knowledge altogether. It, of course, makes any conclusion just as valid as any other conclusion. Um, you know, we can draw conclusions. I mean, I can say to you that, I mean, empirically, as they say, just through observation, looking at history, looking at the world around me, I can say the freer a society has been, the more productive and creative it has been, the more it has liberated the human mind and the creative human mind to uh, improve the world around us. Are the, it, all of the things being equal, 
a free society will advance much further in science, art, technology, economics. Freedom is connected to human well-being, prosperity, and success. Why? Well, as I said, as objectivists, we know that reason is our tool of knowledge. Reason is our basic tool of survival. Insofar as our policies, uh, economic policies, political policies, respect the role of reason, understand the role of reason, all, again, all other things being equal, and that's what we do here when it's not perfectly mechanically predictable. We, we The term is ceteris paribus. We can say all other things being equal, the rational will tend to win, and it will. And if you have a large number of people who are independently confronting the problem of survival, each on their own, there will be this tendency. But I can't tell you it's going to be a rigid one-for-one mathematical relationship, like Friedman and many of his Chicago school people say. Um, And so when their mechanical quantitative predictions don't turn out exactly correct, of course, there's going to be the huge pile. See, you didn't know. See, even you and your Chicago guys, they get it all wrong. And that's what I often hear. Uh, from people who criticize the, quote, libertarian approach to economics. They'll say, your predictions are never exactly correct. You could never tell me exactly when the recession will begin. You'll never tell me exactly when the price level on this commodity will be when it is. Well, of course not. Human beings have free will, and we're talking about millions of human beings here. In fact, my science tells me I can't know that. My reason tells me I can't know it at that level. Does that make me totally ignorant? No, I can still look at history and tell you that the free societies over here, to the degree a country has experienced economic freedom, is exactly the degree, and that funny, to which it has experienced economic prosperity. There are laws, there are generalizations that we can make, um, but we take into account the reality of free will. You see, and we we have an we we understand the objectivity that reason can provide, and. The limitations on that, what we can and can't know in applying that. Um, if you approach it like a physical science, if you approach it um, requiring quantitatively exact predictions, as Milton Friedman does, because predictiveness is your only standard, because you don't believe in induction, because you're fraught with this analytic synthetic dichotomy of tautologies versus contingent facts, or if you think values are purely subjective, then of course you have no way of uh, objectively really evaluating economic systems and so forth. You couldn't say, for example, that the United States, I'd rather be, see, I'd rather be poor in the United States than Myanmar, much mm-hmm. rather be poor in the United States. Um, and why, why? Because I have an objective view of values. Absent an objective view of values, I couldn't make that statement, Professor Friedman. Well, how do I know that living, you know, like they do in Myanmar isn't better than the way they live in New York City? <laughs> I'm making a, an evaluative, and if it's not objective, well, Mr. Friedman, you may just, just hang up your economics hat <laughs> there because we're not serving objective values. I'd say this about anyone entering the humanities. If you can't have objective values, why are you even engaged in studying economics or history or politics or psychology? The study of humanity would be utterly uh, useless if we didn't have an objective code of values, an objective sense of values to help us evaluate, evaluate different outcomes. It's true, we can't engage in controlled experiments like we do in the physical sciences. Right, human beings. I mean, the closest things 
we get to are things like the Nazi concentration camps. But that's horror or B.F. Skinner's, you know, Skinner box, putting babies through mazes or something to get the bottle. Some horror, you wouldn't do, it would be immoral, grossly immoral to try and control experiments on human beings the way we do with physical objects and the physical sciences. Uh, we don't have that kind of ability. We do have the, however, the entire database of human history. We do have the database of comparing all of the things being equal, this policy to that. Yes, and we, we need to wrap up. Uh, I think it's a topic that can be can give us a lot of topics. I think Ayn Rand, I'm calling for memory, uh, recalling from memory. She talks about economics having an inferiority complex. <laughs> But I, so Daniel, do, do we have any uh, super chats and announcements? We have a super chat from Jonathan. Thank you so much. And also super chat from Quent Corder Fine Art. They say, we love being a sponsor of the work that ARC UK is doing. Quent Corder Fine Art celebrates living. They mm -hmm. sure do. Quent Corder, if I could just say it one more time. Quent Corder Fine Arts has been making the world an even more beautiful place for 27 years. And they sure have. Specializing in romantic realist paintings and sculptures, the gallery's collection emphasizes themes which celebrate the moments of happiness, joy, and success possible to man on earth. Acquire art you'll want to live with, and it will make a difference to your life, ladies and gentlemen, by visiting them online at cordaire.com or at their Napa, California, or Jackson, Wyoming locations. And the new Ayn Rand portrait prints have arrived. You can visit the link in the description and the pinned comment to get yours today. And for every print purchased with the code ARCUK, Quent Cordaire Fine Art will donate $25 to Ayn Rand Center UK. Um, I, I, I just have to personally say I love the, the art there and it makes my life better. And, you know, you can have prints and it doesn't need to be an expensive thing, ladies and gentlemen. And it helps support the work we do here. Uh, what else is coming on today, uh, Daniel, uh, Ayn Rand Center UK? I noticed we're reaching the top of the hour. Yeah, in, uh, in four minutes, so at 6 p.m. UK time, we have the reality show on electric car road trip. There has been the story about a politician trying to do a road trip in an electric car, and it was failing everywhere, and she wasn't really able to do it. <laughs> That is, you can't miss that. You can't miss that. And there's all kinds of other stuff uh, coming up this weekend. If you're a subscriber to the Ayn Rand Center UK, which I urge everyone to do. Um, um, you know, Alejandro, we will have to continue this discussion on methodology and economics. Method we can discuss the Austrians. We can talk more about Hayek, for example, or talk more about Friedman and the Chicago School and the humanities in general. How can we be objective in history and psychology when we discuss uh, sciences that relate to volitional human beings, uh, which is a different, uh, there are differences, but it's really no different in its epistemology than any of the other sciences are. It's inductive, based on observation, valid concepts, uh, and an objective code of values, an objective approach to values. I want to thank you. You know, these conversations we have are always gold to me, Alejandro. Indeed, so, to me too. Gosh, that's me, me thank you very much, James.